You can judge your hair. You can judge your sleeves. Watching Queer Eye and listening to this audiobook can help you judge your whole life. Perhaps straight guys don't talk about these things because they're afraid it'll make them seem gay. Trust us. No. Just no. Think about the guy you know who cares the most about wine, who dresses sharp, shakes hands properly, and doesn't smell like an athletic supporter. Do you think that he worries that his interests seem effete? I don't think so. Because he's too busy beating off women with a stick. A little hair gel and some pants that fit aren't going to set off anybody's gaydar, people. Women know who's gay and who isn't, and gay men definitely know. If tomorrow morning you shave correctly and wear a shirt actually your size, gay men aren't all of a sudden going to start palming your ass on the sidewalks. Another thing, a queer eye doesn't mean a queer look. It's a point of view, a receptiveness to looking at what works and what doesn't, instead of just accepting things as they are. It's an openness to what's stylish and fun, but not according to any predetermined formula. We don't want you to look just like us, especially not like Carson. We know that you heteros just can't get away with his particular brand of sartorial splendor. We want you to look your best. That means taking who you are, emphasizing the best, eliminating the worst, and tweaking the rest. And that means a process of checking out what you've already got working for you, what you can get working for you, and figuring out how to make that journey from A to B. Let's repeat that. This is a journey. Not a firm destination with confirmed reservations for the best penthouse suite. Picking up this audiobook is like buying your ticket. Listening to it is like actually taking the first leg. But this isn't the be-all and end-all of every last bit of information and advice on food and wine, grooming, decorating, fashion and culture. We really are just gay men, not supermen. One audiobook can't cover the whole universe of knowledge, either that we have to offer or that you may want. Ted has hundreds of great recipes in his repertoire. I could write a whole book on belts. Actually, a whole book just on buckles. So don't expect that when you get to the end, you'll know everything there is to know. You will know the basics, and you will know what you want to pursue further. You'll know how to take those first steps toward enjoying life to the utmost, and having good hair while you're at it. You'll have a better idea of where you're going, and you'll have fun getting there. Bear in mind what we always say. Queer Eye isn't a makeover show, it's a make better show. Our goal isn't to turn you into someone else. If you're a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy, we're not going to make you squeeze into an uptight suit and tie. Do you see yourself as a long-haired rock and roller? We're not going to tell you to get a Paris Island buzz cut. That's so not what we're about. But we will find you the right jeans and t-shirt. And we will make sure your long hair isn't harboring any tangles or aviaries. We're also not going to tell you to go out and spend $70,000 you don't have on a renovated kitchen, or even $7 on a glass of wine you don't want. It's not about spending money, guys. It's about spending thoughts. That's what the Queer Eye is about, and that's what a Make Better does. The Fab Five. Okay, Sparky, let's motor. Part One. Food and Wine. This is Ted Allen. I would like to blame the French. First of all, it's always fun to blame the French, and they've come to expect and enjoy this in their way. Second, I think it falls to the Gauls to accept responsibility for the sorry state of culinary phobia in these Etats Unis. They are superior cooks, and they will never let anybody forget it. They persist in christening their wineries with names that we can't pronounce. And with their super-Frenchy domination of all things tasty, it might appear that they have cowed the average American guy into believing that food and wine are impossible for mortals to master, and are best left to specialists. French specialists. But actually, it's our fault. 
Even now, after years and years of surging interest in cooking and eating well, I believe we are still largely a nation far too intimidated by cuisine, and it is deliciously our loss. Oddly, we embrace the foodstuffs that we actually should fear, the processed, the prepackaged, and the artificially preserved, but when it comes to such happy things as exquisite restaurants with dazzling silver and wine glasses the size of a baby's head, an amazing number of Americans, men and women, straight and gay, are so intimidated they would rather eat deep-fried bloomin' onion in chain restaurants alongside shopping malls. Personally, I think our bad eating habits, and our fear of changing them, have a lot to do with the circa 1950s haughty fine-dining experience. It's an outmoded cliché that we still hold to as truth. The snooty maitre d', the vast and bewildering wine list, the dress code, the fussy presentations, and, simmering beneath it all, the deeply held suspicion that French people are making fun of us for not knowing their luxurious language and sticking us with bad wine for enormous amounts of cash because we're too ignorant to know the difference. Let's make a few pronouncements, shall we? Excellent. Great food and wine is about having a great time. It's about celebration. It's about learning new tastes and interpretations of classic ideas. It's about putting delicious things in our mouths. Even kids and dogs understand this. Why can't grown men? There's almost no better way to learn about other cultures than through their food. Almost no better way to get to know people with your clothes on, anyway. But first and foremost, it should be about enjoying life with friends and family and about having fun. Food should never not be fun. And it's been my experience that the vast majority of people who dedicate their lives to the exceedingly difficult business of working in 100-degree kitchens all hours of the night actually feel that way about what they're doing. They love food. They love people. At least, they love people who also love food and who tip well. They are generous people, even if their corkage fee is a little steep. So fear not the saucier, the sommelier, or any of those other French-sounding gatekeepers of good taste. Why are so many men inept at how to behave in a nice restaurant, let alone at attempting to whip up a sole miniere at home for their special lady? The French aside, I think it's perfectly understandable. Many of us don't know much about food, which is a natural consequence of nobody ever teaching us anything on the subject. Because baking pies and cookies is still considered girly in some corners. Because it's seen as fussy to appreciate a beautiful entree delicately composed in a puddled sauce on a plate, when what a real man supposedly wants is a bloody four-pound porterhouse. Because the world of wine is vast and bewildering, even if you do know the difference between a Rothschild and a Thunderbird. You know, in an audiobook with Straight Guy in the title, the old cliché about men being too proud-slash-insecure to ask for directions was bound to come up sooner or later. So let me be the first to raise it. Guys are too proud-slash-insecure-slash-hard-headed to ask for instructions in the realm of eating well. Enough already. Time to let that anxiety go and have something to eat. The waiter is your friend. The wine guy, whatever he's called, it's actually pronounced sommelier, he's your friend too. Think of them as guides, like the grizzly and sunburned types who take you deep-sea fishing. You wouldn't go deep-sea fishing without a grizzly and sunburned type, so why think you should be able to intuitively wow your colleagues with an encyclopedic knowledge of Bordeaux? Here's the thing. All you need to enjoy great food is an open mind and the curiosity and humility to ask intelligent questions. Here's the other thing. Being open-minded and curious is sexy and interesting, unlike being stuck in your ways, which is not. And another, sooner or later, women have to eat. If you like that sort of thing, women, I mean, you're going to need to take them to restaurants. And, if you're smart, cook them dinner once in a while. And you're going to want to look cool in the process. So herewith, our introductory guide to eating well, one of the hallmarks of living well. Bon appétit, or as they say, good eating. Getting started. Food's got rhythm. 
Fruits and vegetables, for those of you unfamiliar with the concept, are nature's delicious, prepackaged, ready-to-eat snack stuffs, conveniently sprouting from the ground or dangling from low-hanging trees. But you should know that vegetables, like beer, are best consumed at the peak of their freshness. Think of them as having born-on dates, and realize that just because supermarkets sell tomatoes all year round doesn't mean they're fit to eat. Most of the year, in fact, they're not. If McDonald's sold the shamrock shake all the time, it wouldn't be so special, would it? Just as shamrocks are at their McFinest in March, real tomatoes, that is, those that ripen in actual sunshine, are at their peak in July, August, and September. Take a look around a farmer's market or local produce stand. This is the stuff that's good right now, fresh and in season. If I can get produce year-round, why do I care what's in season? Because out-of-season produce tastes lousy, and it never has the texture you want. A dish is only as good as the ingredients you put into it. Substandard veggies will actually do harm to whatever it is you're making. A February tomato, a zucchini in November, or a peach in April are likely to be mealy and flavorless. You can get decent out-of-season fruit flown in from other continents, but it's harder to find, more expensive, and less reliably good. The Essential Tools, 10 Culinary Weapons Every Man Should Own. The 8-inch chef's knife. The most important tool in any kitchen, period. Everything needs to get cut, and this is the guy to do it. Tall enough so you can chop without slamming your knuckles onto the cutting board. Other knives come in handy for specific tasks. A serrated knife for slicing bread, a carving knife for that holiday bird, a paring knife for, say, peeling mangoes. But a good chef's knife will get you through 95% of your cuts with a plum and the other 5% in a pinch. The Instant Read Thermometer. Nothing produces more anxiety in the kitchen than the issue of undercooking or overcooking the turkey, or the $15 per pound beef tenderloin. And nothing is more easily solved without cutting into your roast. Spend five bucks on a simple thermometer, consult a meat temperature chart for the desired doneness, and bring some precision to the pork roast. 12-inch tongs. In the pantheon of kitchen tools, these are the jaws of life. Grab, flip, stir, twirl, the best. They allow you to turn meat without puncturing it, and hence without losing all of the juices that make meat tasty. They're great for moving things around in a pan, they're easy to use, and they'll make you look like more of a pro than any $4,000 stove. The 10-inch sauté pan. The all-purpose pan you'll use every day. Spend the money on solid construction and quality, from high-quality brand names like Allclad or Calphalon, for example. You want one with an aluminum core, which conducts heat better for more even cooking. And throw away all those college-era tin pans you have rusting up the joint. The sturdy roasting pan with handles. Great for roasting chicken, potatoes, prime rib, and leg of lamb. And since you'll probably have no other space to store it but in the oven, it will keep your oven thermometer company. An oven thermometer, by the way, measures the temperature in your oven. It's a different thing from your instant read thermometer, which is for food. The Dutch oven, or enamel-coated cast iron pot. The most carefree, hearty entrees are those made in the following fashion. Put a bunch of meat and vegetables in a big pot with some liquid and let it cook slowly for the better part of a day. In order to make these, you need a big, heavy pot, preferably made of cast iron and coated in enamel, a reasonably nonstick surface. Get a big one, say, 8-quart, and fill it with the aforementioned ingredients now. We'll be right over. The Pepper Grinder. Freshly ground black pepper is a must for almost any savory, that is, not sweet, dish. I'm partial to the little cast aluminum jobs with a crank handle on top. Fifty bucks, but they last forever. The cast iron grill pan. 
Not just another pan, this is the power of barbecuing harnessed for indoor, off-season use. The ridges give meats and vegetables distinctive grill marks, and the seasoned surface means no sticking, and therefore easy cleanup. Knocks the George Foreman on its ass. The digital timer. Make that two timers, especially when you're juggling multiple dishes. You won't want to be doing sums on your forearm to coordinate this stuff. The rubber jar opener. Sure, you're a strong, masculine guy, powerful forearms and all that, but wouldn't it be humiliating if you tried to open that jar of cute little French cornichons and fail while she's watching? It can happen to anybody. Sometimes those lids seem practically soldered on. Now I know how to treat a lady. How do I treat a cast iron pan? To keep a cast iron pan happy and non-sticking, don't let it soak. It will rust. And don't use soap. Just sponge with warm water. If there are stuck-on bits and you need something abrasive, try kosher salt. Really. After each rinsing, put a few drops of vegetable oil on a paper towel and rub the inside of the pan all over to create a thin, shiny film. Really, you want oil in this. If you buy a new cast iron pan, follow the directions that come with it to season it properly. More essentials plugged in. The food processor. If you really get into cooking, this will sooner or later be indispensable for speeding up chopping tasks and for making sauces and dough. The blender, if for no other reason than frozen cocktails. The coffee grinder. The number one secret to superb coffee is fresh ground beans, as in freshly ground this second, right before you make the coffee. The rice cooker. Despite the extraordinarily easy instructions on every package of rice, it's oddly difficult to get it perfect. Available in supermarkets, hardware stores, nearly anywhere with kitchen supply departments, and even Asian delis, rice cookers ensure success. Cooking is like shaving. It's no fun without a sharp, sharp blade. You can't really accomplish anything in the kitchen unless you have good knives. You can have cheap cutting boards, cheap bowls, but if you're going to enjoy cooking, you need good steel. Buy Hinkels or Wusthof, both high-quality German numbers, available at any store with a good cookware section, as well as any cooking-oriented catalog or website. Or, if you don't mind washing them by hand, the good old wood-handled Chicago cutlery. Better to buy one or two really expensive do-everything models and just get a cheap bread knife. Anybody can make a serrated knife that's going to work fine. That's the sledgehammer of knives. Many of the high-end models have plastic handles, a plus here because it allows them to be put in the dishwasher. Take note of the converse. Wood implements of any sort should not go in the dishwasher. Your cutting board, salad bowl, and serving spoons, those wood-handled steak knives you got for Christmas from your father-in-law, none of this goes in the dishwasher, ever. The hot water and soap will ruin the finish of the wood.